Beloved congregation, today we have remarkable tools at our disposal to research our ancestry. So what that means, boys and girls, that because of our computers and our ability to access files and what have you, we can now go way back and, and try to find out who our forefathers were. But what if in your research you would stumble on embarrassing facts? What if in your research you would discover that one of your ancestors was the result of an illegitimate birth? What if you would discover in your research that one of your ancestors was a criminal? What if you would discover in your research that one of your ancestors was a woman of immorality? Would you publish that? Would you make that known? No, we would, we would try to conceal that because that would stain our own reputation. That would embarrass us. But not so with Christ. We have to realize, congregation, that Christ himself is the author of his own word. It is the living word who by his spirit has given us the written word. That includes the opening verses of the gospel of Matthew. A gospel that begins in such a remarkable way. A gospel that begins with a remarkable summary of the entire Old Testament. A gospel that begins with the affirmation that God is a covenant-keeping God who remembers His covenant from generation to generation. A gospel that begins with the affirmation that God has kept His word, the promise that He made to Abraham resulting in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that genealogy, that's what we call that. That genealogy is stained by sin. As I pointed out to you last week, we're going to focus on the four women who are mentioned in there. And each of them, in a unique way, would be an embarrassment to all of us if they were recorded in our genealogy. But not only women of sin. It mentions some very, very ungodly kings. Rehoboam, an ungodly king. Joram, a wicked, ungodly king. Ahaz, a wicked man. Manasseh, Amon, Jeconias. But why is it, why is it that Christ by His Spirit has seen to it that all of these names will be recorded in His genealogy? Is to teach us a fundamental lesson of the gospel. That where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so we read in Hebrews 11 verse 16, these remarkable words. God 
is not ashamed to be called their God. Christ is not ashamed to be identified with people that are recorded in Matthew 1. He is not ashamed to know, for us to know that his mother was Tamar, that his mother was Rahab the harlot, that his mother was Ruth the Moabites, that his mother was Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David, that among his forefathers were wicked and ungodly kings, not ashamed to be called their God. Because what that genealogy affirms is the purpose for which he came into the world. He comes as a son of Adam, as a perfect son of Adam, but he comes out of a generation of sinners because he came to be the Savior of sinners. He came to redeem sinners such as are listed here. He came to save sinners such as we are. Because God forbid that if we read this genealogy, that we would think of ourselves higher than the people who are listed here. Ultimately, what we have in common with all those who are listed here, what we have in common with them, that we are fallen, sinful sons and daughters of Adam. And that we have a life story. You and I have a life story that is stained with sin. But that's the marvel of the gospel. The gospel of Matthew 1. This faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And we will never marvel at this unless we understand what it means to be a sinner, not just intellectually, not just theologically, but we need to understand that experientially. And when that becomes real experientially, what it means to be a sinner, to be undone before God, then we marvel that Christ came to save sinners. And the gospel becomes good news indeed. With God's help, we're going to look at another trophy of the sovereign grace of God, namely Rahab the harlot. And so we're going to focus, of course, Matthew 1 verse 5 reads very, very simply, and Solomon, who was a prince, begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, Obed begat Jesse, and of course Jesse begat David. So by this time we are seven generations removed from Tamar, who gave birth to Pharis. And this text is the only text in Scripture that tells us that Salmon married Rahab the harlot, and that thus she became a mother of Christ. And so we will consider her in light of the passages we have read from Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. 
And we want to highlight three things by way of these passages. So Rahab was, first of all, a woman who believed in Israel's God. And we will illustrate that from the passage. And it's very, very clear that God had done a remarkable work in the heart of this harlot, of this prostitute. Secondly, a woman delivered by Israel's God. Also remarkably described in this passage, especially when we read in Joshua 6.25, and Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive. And boys and girls, I know that some of you know the older ones for sure. You know that Joshua is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus. Or we could say that Jesus is the Greek translation of the Old Testament name Joshua. And Joshua means Jehovah's salvation. So a woman delivered through Joshua... Through Joshua, she was kept alive. Through Joshua, she was delivered by Israel's God. And thirdly, a woman honored by Israel's God. As we will see in two places of Scripture, two places in Scripture highlight the fact that Rahab the harlot belongs to the record of God's redeemed people. So Rahab, the mother of Christ, a woman who believed in Israel's God, a woman delivered by Israel's God, and a woman honored by Israel's God. So Rahab was a Canaanitish woman, as was Tamar. And we need to understand again that that Canaanitish culture was a, a very wicked, a very immoral culture. The worst manifestations of immorality were common in the land of Canaan. That's why God instructed His people that they could not spare the Canaanites. That's why the Canaanites had to be killed, had to be eliminated. Because unless they would eliminate the Canaanites... The Canaanites would ultimately corrupt the people of Israel. And you know what happens in the book of Judges. They did not get the job done. They only partially obeyed God. And sure enough, they became corrupted by the Canaanites that remained. And so Rahab was very much part of that culture. She was an ungodly woman of Canaan. She was an immoral woman who made her living by practicing her immorality. She was a harlot. Time and again, Scripture reminds us that she was a harlot. And that culture did not look down upon that profession. In that culture, it was perfectly normal for one who owned a hotel or a, an inn, as she did, that she would practice her immorality as well. They thought nothing of it. And this woman, this hardened sinner, that's what she was, to live that kind of life, 
to engage in that kind of immorality week after week, day after day, that means you have a heart that is as hard as adamant, as hard as stone, because that, that's what sin does. The repeated engagement in sin, when we sin repeatedly, it has a hardening effect on her. And so of all the people in Jericho, of all the people in Canaan, she was the most unlikely candidate to become a recipient of the grace of God. Just like the jailer, the Philippian jailer. Again, a hardened man. Who would have thought that Paul and Silas being committed to that prison would result in the salvation of that man? But that's, you see, that's precisely the point. That's why these histories are in the Word of God, because we need to understand, congregation, that you and I by nature are just as unlikely to be the recipients of grace as they were. By nature, your and my hearts are just, are just as hard, are just as sinful, are just as hostile to the truth of God's Word. We may be able to hide it. We may be able to cover it under an outward veneer of civility. But your and my heart is no different than the heart of Rahab the harlot. No different than the heart of the Philippian jailer. But when we meet this woman, it's very obvious that by the time those two spies that, Jeric that, uh, that Joshua had sent to spy out the city, by the time they come to her inn, by the time they come under her roof, something already remarkable had happened. I would agree with most of the commentators that God already changed the heart of that woman before these men ever arrived. Because that alone explains her, her entire attitude. Because when they come to the harlot's house and they lodge there, as we read together, it's quickly known that two men have come to the house of Rahab, who obviously belong to the nation of Israel. And we know from the testimony of Rahab that the city was filled with fear because they knew the Israelites were there. They were poised to conquer their city. They had heard about all the things that had happened to Sihon and to Og, to those kings of Bashan. They were fearful. So when they found out that two of those Israelites had entered the city, that they were staying in that inn, the king quickly sends a delegation to, to get these men. And then the first thing we read about Rachel is that she hid them. She hid them. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that this is a remarkable thing because this already testifies. As a matter of fact, when we go to Hebrews 11 and we go to James 2, and we will do that later, we will see that that act of hiding them was already evidence of her faith, was evidence of grace. 
Because a woman of her moral caliber would have thought nothing of betraying these men. What difference would that have made to her? But instead, she hid them. That was a wonderful thing. But then the next thing we read about her is that she lied about them. Now we'll get back to that later. I don't want to focus on that now. Because that's clearly stated here. And so the question that you may have, boys and girls, is the question, was it okay for her to lie? Did she not lie for a good reason? But we'll get back to that later. But the important thing right now is that here is a woman with an incredible immoral track record who is willing to risk her life to protect these spies. And why? Because God had transformed her heart. He had shed abroad his love into the heart of this harlot. And because of that, she esteemed the God of the Israelites, we will see. And he also esteemed his people. Because this woman was drawn to Israel's God. That's number one, the first reason why we believe that she had been transformed by the marvelous and sovereign grace of God. That God had transformed this unbelieving harlot into a believer, a believer in his name. Because that's what regeneration does. Regeneration transforms us from an unbeliever into a believer. Again, she was no different than any of the other citizens of Jericho. They had all heard the same news. And they trembled and they were fearful, but they did not repent. Just like the guards at the grave who witnessed the resurrection, but it didn't change them. The only way we can explain Rachel's or Rahab's behavior here and the way she conducts herself is because the grace of God had transformed the heart of this woman. Secondly, so first of all, she's willing to risk her life to protect the spies of Israel. Secondly, she confesses with awe, or she confesses her awe for Israel's mighty God. Look at verses 9 and 10. Make sure you keep your Bibles open. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us. In verse 10 she says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what's remarkable, and you can see it in your Bible, is that somehow she was acquainted with God's covenant name. She uses the name Yahweh. So when Darius, for instance, in, in Daniel 6, when he is so impressed with the fact that Daniel's God protected him, he does not, know, he does not use that name. But here, this woman, Rahab, repeatedly uses the name Yahweh, Lord. And it's very significant congregation. Because that was the name only known to the people of Israel. 
That was the name in which God revealed himself as the God of salvation, as the God of redemption, as the covenant God. And somehow, we don't know how, somehow she became acquainted with that name and she refers to him by that name. And she confesses her awe for that God. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Remarkable confession. She was absolutely convinced that this was God's doing. She, by grace, understood in some measure who he was and who these people were. So secondly, she confesses her awe for Israel's mighty God. Thirdly, she confesses Jehovah to be the only true God. Verse 11, for the Lord your God. Notice how she refers to that special relationship between Jehovah and the people of Israel. The Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now why is that remarkable? Because by, by way of that confession, she denounces all of her idols. She confesses to these spies that she believes Israel's God to be the only God, that she believes him to be the creator of heaven and earth. She acknowledges God to be who he is. And you know what Jesus said to Peter when he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And we can say the same thing here of Rahab. Flesh and blood did not reveal to her who this God was, this covenant God of Israel, this Yahweh, this God of salvation. Flesh and blood did not reveal to her that her idols were vain, and that he alone was the true God worthy to be worshipped. Fourthly, she expresses her loyalty to the people of God. Look at verse 12. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. So what does that mean, boys and girls? What is she expressing thereby? First of all, again, a confession about that she stood in awe of Israel's God. And she's asking these men to swear by that name that they will deal kindly with her. And what she was asking here, asking to be part of this people. I would like to be part of your people. I want to be part of that people whose God is this Lord. It reminds us in a way of Ruth, when Naomi tried to compel her to return to her own country. And as she made this confession, she said, your people is my people and your God is my God. And here, in, in, in this way, Rahab is expressing, he's saying, please, Please take me. Please be gracious to me. I desire, I desire to be part of your people. 
Fifthly, she demonstrates love and concern for her family. That you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. She was convinced that judgment was coming. She was convinced that no one in Jericho would survive. When Israel would come upon them, she knew that her father and her mother and all of her family members were destined to die. They were destined to perish. And before God changed her mind, that would have meant nothing to her. Noticeably absent here is any reference to a husband because she didn't have one. But what happens also today when God makes us spiritually alive then we, we, we all of a sudden we become concerned about our loved ones. We become concerned about our fellow men. All of a sudden she realizes the dangerous plight that her family is in. She's concerned about them, about their well-being. All of a sudden, this hardened harlot has become a woman of tender love. Please, take care of my family. Don't let them perish. And of course, she showed genuine hospitality towards the spies. In, in 1 John 3, verse 14, we read, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So we can summarize all of this very, very simply. She manifested by her conduct and by her confession the genuine fruits of regeneration. And what does that mean? What, what do we see here? We see a love for God, a love for Israel's God, and we see a love for her neighbor. All of this is happening in a very hostile environment. All of this is happening in the life of someone who was the most unlikely candidate to be a recipient of God's grace. But when God's grace gets a hold of us, when God's grace transforms us, the evidence will not remain unnoticed. In Galatians 5, verse 6, Paul writes, Faith worketh by love. Faith bears fruit. Faith manifests itself in our actions. It becomes visible by our love for God and our love for our neighbor. And so Rahab, the harlot, by nature an ungodly woman of Canaan, transformed by the marvelous sovereign grace of God, but also a woman designated by the Holy Spirit as a woman of faith. This is very significant. This is where you see how the New Testament enables us to properly and correctly interpret the Old Testament. Because twice the Holy Spirit bears witness to the fact that this harlot was a woman of faith. What do we read in Hebrews 11 verse 31? It says, by faith, 
the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. When she had received the spies with peace. Do you notice that? What, what the apostle is writing here by inspiration? What proved her faith? When she had received the spies with peace. And now that white lie. How do we justify that? A woman of faith. Identified in Hebrews 11 and James 2. We're going to look at that passage later. Identified as a woman of faith. And she obviously lied. Which is contrary. Contrary to that new nature. But let me ask you a question. You and I, if we confess, we confess to be believers in Christ. Was there nothing this past week that you did or said that was inconsistent with your profession? No sinful thoughts? No sinful words? No sinful deeds? Who of us would dare to say today, my week was flawless. My profession was flawless. My walk was flawless. I did nothing that, was, that contradicted my profession. And the reason I say that to myself and to you is that we should be very careful to judge. We have to realize she was a young believer. She was coming out of a, a Gentile, out of a Canaanitish culture where lying meant nothing. Lying was fine as long as you got away with it. And, when, and I need to emphasize as well that as far as God is concerned, there is no such thing as a white lie. A lie is a lie, period. God is a God of truth. And he hates when we distort the truth, even though you could argue that she was motivated by love. She loved these men. She loved Israel's God. And because she loved them, she lied to protect them. But it was a lie nevertheless. So we could say that, so we see, as we see in the life of every believer, we see remnants of our old nature that will manifest themselves at times. And so we need to be very careful here. And we realize that I am no better than Rahab and you are no better than Rahab. Because what we have in common, what we have in common with this woman, we are all, congregation, we, as if we are by the grace of God, if you are a true believer today, we are all regenerated Gentiles. Not only are we Gentiles by way of our history, we are the sons and daughters of Gentiles. But we, by nature, we have Gentile hearts. The grace of God transforms Gentiles into believers as he did with Rahab the harlot. And until our last breath, we will be inconsistent now, part of growth in grace is that slowly but surely, by the grace of God and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our walk becomes more and more consistent. 
But until we die, we will have to struggle with our old nature. And until we die, there will be these sad moments that just like Rahab, we do things that contradict what we profess. So a woman who believed in Israel's God. Secondly, a woman who was delivered by Israel's God. In verse 17 of chapter 6, now we're switching to chapter 6, we read this, Joshua is saying this, and the city shall be accursed even it and all that are therein to the Lord. The Lord would destroy Jericho. So what does it mean again that this city was accursed? It means it was destined for destruction. Let me emphasize again, congregation, there is nothing worse than for God's curse to be upon us. And that's true for every sinner. We are born under the curse of the law. And as long as we live as unbelievers, as long as we live unconverted lives because of our unbelieving hearts, we are under the curse of the law. And as long as the curse of the law is upon us, God's judgment is unavoidable and inescapable. So it was for, for Jericho, a city that was destined for destruction. And that curse applied to all of the inhabitants of Jericho. And Rahab belonged to that population of Jericho. And that's why it's so beautiful that Joshua here says, the city shall be accursed of God. That this city is destined for destruction. We are called to execute God's wrath upon this city only. Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. This is what the New Testament emphasizes. This act, they're not talking about anything else, but this act of her risking her life, hiding the messengers, this is the evidence of her saving faith. This is the evidence that she was a woman of faith. That's what Hebrews tells us. That's what James tells us, the passage we're going to look at shortly. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. Congregation, that is still true today. We live on a planet that is destined for destruction. We live on a sinking ship. We know the day is coming that God will execute his wrath upon this ungodly world. That final judgment is coming of which Peter speaks in 2 Peter 3. When the elements will melt. When God will judge this wicked world by fire. That judgment is inescapable. God's curse rests upon this earth. And who are the only ones that will escape that judgment. Only they who by grace have put their trust in Israel's God as Rahab did. Only they who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ultimately that is the object of faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. 
And she's the only one of two women mentioned in Hebrews 11, specifically singled out by name, Sarah being the other one. A woman of faith. And that's why the, 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 the name Lord is so significant in her confession. As you know, I've said it here many times, that name Lord in capital letters always points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the only ones that will escape the curse of God are they who, like Rahab, put their trust in God and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. We addressed that recently when we talked about the crucifixion of Christ. Why does the catechism say, why did he have to die on the cross? Why was he not beheaded or executed in any other way? Why the cross? Because that cross symbolized God's curse. And in order to be the savior of sinners, in order to redeem us, he had to be made a curse. So we ask ourselves, why? Why did Jesus come in the fullness of time? Why was he born in Bethlehem's manger? He was born to die. That baby in the manger was destined for the cross. He came to accomplish redemption by being made a curse for us. That's why God's curse hovered over that manger. The shadow of the cross fell across that manger. And that curse pursued him all the way to Calvary's cross. There he was made a curse. What an amazing statement. That means that he became completely identified with that curse. He became the lightning rod, if you will. The lightning rod that attracted the wrath of God as the substitute and mediator of sinners. And God's wrath was unleashed upon him. He was made a curse so that we could be blessed. So it was with Rahab. Because what saved her ultimately? She said, oh, she said to the spies, oh, let there be a token. Let there be a token. Give me a true token. And you know that that token was that scarlet cord. You need to know something about that scarlet cord. Normally that hang on the inside of the wall. That scarlet cord was the means whereby she advertised her business. That's what she did with the scarlet cord. Today we have red light districts. She advertised her business by hanging a scarlet cord out of her window. And that scarlet cord which reminded her of her sinful past, that now becomes a token. Because this time, that cord is going to hang on the outside of the wall. Again, confirming the dramatic change that has happened in the life of this woman. And she says, let that cord by which I let you down, let that be a token. Let that be a token. Now we have to be careful that we don't 
allegorize here, that we don't read something into it. But it is significant, however, because it was that cord hanging outside which was seen by the, by the people of Israel. And that reminded them of the oath that they made that they would preserve her and her house. You wonder if those spies thought of what happened in Egypt 40 years earlier when they were safe behind the blood. And so many of our forefathers, many commentators do make a spiritual application here. And I think we can do that safely without allegorizing. Because ultimately, what will save us, what will save us from God's wrath, we as the people of God, because you know that if God would deal with us with, according to our sins after we have been saved, we would still perish. But wherein lies our hope? Our hope lies in the bloody covenant of grace. And when, we, and by, and when by the grace of God, we have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God will view us in him. And so that token, that cord, would remind Joshua of the oath that was made. And when he saw that cord, Rahab and her house were spared. And so it says it so beautifully in verse 25. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her household, and all that she had, and she dwelleth in Israel. Oh, Joshua, that wonderful name. Joshua, who is an Old Testament type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua saved the harlot. That's the gospel. Joshua, God's servant, saved the harlot. That's what Jesus Christ has come to do. He has come to save sinners. He has come to save sinners, even harlots. That's the beauty of this story. And we will only marvel at this. We will only delight in this if by the grace of God we have begun to understand that we are just as wretched a person by nature as she was. And then it becomes amazing, amazing that Jesus, the greater Joshua, he came to save sinners. And then we can fill in our own names and we can say, by the grace of God, it is Jesus who will save us alive. It, will it is Jesus who redeems us. It is Jesus who delivers us from the curse that we deserve. It was because of Joshua and because he honored that token. He saved her alive. She was a woman of Jericho. She was just as worthy of God's judgment as any of the other citizens. But she was saved alive because of the sovereign and distinguishing grace of God. And of course we know from Matthew 1 why is it 
Why is it that God saved Rahab the harlot? Because that action that Joshua took is a key moment in redemption history. Because God had purposed that this woman would be incorporated into Israel, that this woman would become a mother of his son in the fullness of time. And so the book of Ruth ends remarkably like this. We will see that next week as well. And Salmon, the prince, begat Boaz from Rahab. We know from Matthew 1 verse 5. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David. This is repeated in, in Matthew. And so she is part of that genealogy that culminates in the birth of Christ. And so we see in this history that God's purpose cannot fail. God's eternal purpose, God's eternal master plan, which we call his decree, will be executed. Nothing can thwart the coming of his kingdom. Nothing could thwart his first coming in the fullness of time, and nothing can thwart his second coming again in the fullness of time. And so this was a critical moment, a critical moment in the history of redemption. Just like Genesis 38, that bizarre chapter, a critical link in the history of redemption. And so was the conversion and the salvation of Rahab, a critical link in the history of redemption. To put it very simply, boys and girls, without Rahab, there would have been no birth of Jesus. We would have nothing to commemorate. But there's another thing, and that's so obvious. I've already woven it all the way through. A woman delivered by Israel's God, whose deliverance confirms that there is salvation for the vilest sinner. So what we have here in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6, we could call that the gospel according to Rahab. That's what it is. This is one of God's powerful gospel lessons of Scripture. This is one of those stories that illustrates what the gospel is all about. This story tells us that no one is too vile, no one is too sinful, no one has ever sunk too deep to be saved by this Savior. He came to save the vilest of all sinners. He came to save Rahab the harlot. He came to save Tamar. He came to save Bathsheba, Manasseh, Saul of Tarsus, John Newton. And dear believer, fill in your own name. He came to save a wretch like you. Do you believe that about yourself? Because unless you believe that about yourself, you will not marvel at this story. But if that's real to you, then this should, this should humble you greatly, and it should at the same time encourage us greatly. That's why Jesus was not ashamed to sit at the same table with harlots and with publicans.
thereby demonstrating who he was and why he came. The Pharisees reviled him. They mocked with him. And they said, look at this man. This man receiveth sinners. And he eats with them. And finally, she is a woman who was honored by Israel's God. First, she had to stay outside of the camp for seven days because of who she was as a Gentile and because of the life she had lived. Can you imagine what went through her mind during those seven days? During that seven days, there had to come a clean break with her entire past. During that seven days, I am sure she meditated on her former life. And she realizes never before that because of who she was and how she had lived, she did not deserve to belong to this people. But after seven days, she is brought into the household of God. All, all because of a Savior of whom we read, Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate, outside. Rahab, in a very painful way, had to reflect on the fact who she was, a Canaanite, a harlot, an outsider. And so when finally, after seven days, she was brought into the house of Israel, she understood as never before how amazing the grace of God was even for her. And now turn with me by way of conclusion to James 2. James 2 verses 21 through 25. James 2 verses 21 through 25. There we have James's inspired testimony regarding Abraham and Rahab. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was count, imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. What James is simply saying, it is our actions as a confessing believer, our actions will prove whether our faith is real. But down this, likewise, likewise, also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and has sent them out another way. Do you notice what's happening here? Abraham, the father of the faithful, the friend of God, and Rahab the harlot are placed side by side. Because who was Abraham? He was an idolater, we know that. When he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, he was an idolater. And now here, Abraham, whom the Jews so highly esteemed, is placed at the same level as Rahab the harlot. Because Abraham's conversion was as remarkable as Rahab's conversion. And so Jesus came to be the savior of idolaters and of prostitutes and of fornicators, of those guilty of sexual immorality. 
He's not ashamed to be identified as the Savior of such sinners. And so Rahab is a trophy of the amazing grace of God. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 31, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. He said it to the Pharisees. And so we know that the Lamb's book of life is filled with Rahab's, filled with sinners just like Rahab. Psalm 87, verse 3 and 4, we're going to sing it together. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. I will make mention of Rahab. Rahab, a woman in the Lamb's book of life. Dear child of God, a sinner like you in the Lamb's book of life. Rahab, who was a harlot, and by the grace of God, she became a saint. For Jesus' sake. And so what we see in this amazing genealogy, we see the whosoever of the gospel. Whosoever, even if you're Tamar, even if you're Rahab, even if you're Ruth the Moabites, even if you are a Bathsheba, even if you are a Manasseh, whosoever believeth in this Christ will not perish, but have eternal life. And that's why, for Christ's sake, God can now come to us today and say, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, gracious God, we bow before thee. How amazing is thy word. How amazing is the gospel. But more than that, how amazing is the Savior of sinners who came in the fullness of time to seek and to save that which is lost, who came to save even a harlot, so that we may know that the vilest sinner can be saved, that the chief of sinners can be saved, that any sinner, whosoever we may be, if we flee for refuge to this Christ, we shall be in no wise cast out. May this encourage us. And so bless thy word. Cause it to bear fruit. Bless the instruction that will take place after this service. Bless our teachers as they instruct our dear young people that they too may be the recipients of the very same grace that was bestowed upon Rahab the harlot. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.